Every morning before we went on duty, we had to go through the fumigation department and also before we left at night. And the mortuaries were so full, we had the patients lying one on top of the other. And it was like the plague must have been. People began, were walking about with their eyes and noses running and their eyes red and sore, and they died like flies. Listening to those recordings, it's impossible not to think of the situation the world finds itself in today. But what those women were describing was not coronavirus. They were talking about the 1918 flu, also known as the Spanish flu, in a BBC audio documentary called Voices of the First World War. History has a way of repeating itself. So when we were thinking of ways of making sense of what is happening today, with a global pandemic bringing societies around the world to a standstill, and South Africa entering its own lockdown, we decided it might be a good idea to go back in time and see what lessons the past can offer us for dealing with the present. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories, or in this particular case, the story before the stories. I'm Rebecca Davis. Professor Frank Snowden is a good person to help us interpret this moment. For one thing, he's a Yale professor who has devoted his life to the study of pandemics and their effects on politics. For another, he happens to find himself in what is now the global epicenter of the coronavirus, Italy. When we spoke to him, Professor Snowden was holed up in an apartment in Rome in which he will be staying for the foreseeable future. He explained that he hadn't intended to be there, Professor Snowden came to Rome to do some research on newly released Vatican archives, and then the coronavirus hit. He hasn't been able to look at a single Vatican paper so far. We're allowed outside of our homes for three purposes. One is to go to a job that's necessary. That doesn't apply to me. Another is to go shopping for provisions. That does apply to me. And to go for a walk in your own neighborhood uh, without encountering other people just for exercise. And that gives me the opportunity to see the neighborhood just a little bit, at least um, once a day. So the atmosphere I do see, the very positive side is that people are taking it very, very seriously. And most people are wearing masks. They take social distancing seriously. The shopkeepers admit you only there are strict ministerial regulations about it. And people are very, very worried and concerned, as you would imagine. These regulations are pretty much identical to the ones which are about to take effect in South Africa. Already many people are worried about the compliance of South Africans who don't have a great track record of following rules. But then again, neither do Italians. One Italian newspaper recently wrote that this is the first time in three millennia that Romans have been obedient. So maybe there's hope for South Africans after all. But amidst all the fear and anxiety in Italy at the moment, Professor Snowden says that there are also moments of tremendous solidarity and humour perhaps best illustrated by the new custom which sees Italians in lockdown making music from their balconies. One of my favorite examples is that at six o'clock in a block of flats in the neighborhood, people, someone, there are balconies for each flat, 
and people come on to those balconies at six o'clock. One of them puts on folk music, Italian traditional songs, and a couple appears on each balcony. That's as many as you can have. And so they dance and sing at six o'clock every evening, thereby creating a sort of community festivity without being close to one another and without breaking the regulations. That seems to me moving and imaginative. Earlier, you heard clips where two British women remembered their experience of the 1918 flu. Now, many experts at the moment are citing that flu from over a century ago as the health emergency which is most reminiscent of our current global situation. Professor Snowden has written about the effects on society of everything from the medieval plague to 20th century malaria. But when I asked him which historical epidemic or pandemic he considered most comparable to what's happening today, he too turns straight to 1918. I suppose I don't wish to say this to cause alarm because that's not my intention. Conditions are different from uh, 1918, but it does look as though this is spreading in ways that remind one, fortunately not yet to the level of mortality, but the potential is there. And so I suppose that with its geographical spread, the fact that it's a pulmonary disease, that it's a viral disease, that we have social, economic, and transportation facilities that enabled the disease to travel worldwide, as happened in 1918. All of those things remind me of the 1918 pandemic. And I would say that that seems like the closest historical example. I hope that this will be at a much lesser level, but that is something that we all are waiting to see, and we won't know until we're much further into this. The 1918 flu remains the most severe global pandemic in recent history. It lasted about two years and infected around a quarter of the world's population, about 500 million people. And South Africa was one of the hardest hit places in the world. The flu killed around 300,000 South Africans within six weeks. Globally, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died. The reason why that figure is so uncertain, by the way, is a reminder of how public health is always inextricably bound up with politics. Because the flu broke out at the tail end of World War I, authorities in a number of countries censored reports of the illness in order to maintain public morale. Professor Snowden also says that the fact that the flu coincided with World War I helps explain one of the most mysterious aspects of it, and that is how badly remembered it was until the coronavirus helped bring it back into the spotlight. In fact, some scholars refer to the 1918 flu as the forgotten pandemic. In the post-war years, people simply wanted to draw a curtain over the terrible events of that time. There are hardly any memorials to the 1918 flu globally. But even though people wanted to forget, the effects of that flu lingered for decades afterwards. It affected peacemaking. It affected the whole war. It had an impact clearly on demography. It uh, left its strongest legacy, perhaps, in the field of public health. And public health people have never forgotten the 1918 pandemic, although they seem to have been crying in the wilderness, calling ever since for preparedness, 
remembering the lessons and being sure that the world is never again caught in the position in which it found itself in 1918. So that is a lasting legacy that is with us today. In 2020, thankfully, we weren't fighting a global war when the coronavirus broke out. But it's also true to say that political tensions were running high in many parts of the globe, including South Africa. And the coronavirus outbreak comes at a time of political turmoil in Europe in particular. It's already clear that the COVID-19 pandemic is causing profound social destabilization. You can see that when you look around you. People are scared, angry, deeply worried about the future and the economic impact this health emergency is going to have. And one question that many of us are considering is, what is the political fallout from all of this likely to be? Is this the kind of event that can topple governments? Foment revolutions? I asked Professor Snowden what the history books have to say about this. It is true that epidemic diseases have strained societies to breaking point in the past and have been both for a better and worse have caused regime change. There is not a single parameter that enables one to predict in advance which type of disease and which type of epidemic would cause major political ramifications. That's something that needs to be examined in each particular circumstance. And pandemic diseases have sometimes strengthened authoritarianism. But in terms of what you asked about revolution, it's also true that pandemics have favored on some occasions the success of revolutions. Perhaps the most dramatic and one of the most serious was in the 19th century, So what Professor Snowden is referring to here took place against the backdrop of the French Revolution. In the 18th century, the Caribbean island that is now called Haiti was still under the control of France. French colonialists were lording it over hundreds of thousands of black slaves. Then the French Revolution breaks out and its ideas spread to Haiti, and there they seed the largest slave rebellion in history. To try to crush this rebellion, Napoleon sends a huge armada to Haiti from France in 1803. But there's just one problem. This military maneuver coincides with an outbreak of yellow fever. The slave population of Haiti, for genetic reasons due to their African descent, had a degree of immunity to yellow fever. The Europeans, sent to quash their rebellion, did not. And so in the spring and summer, yellow fever broke out and ravaged the soldiers and sailors. That is, the people sent some 50,000 people uh, to repress the rebellion. And the French commander, by late summer, wrote to Paris that he was unable to continue because 80% of his soldiers and sailors had died of yellow fever and the other 20% was convalescing in hospital and unfit for bearing weapons. And so the French surrendered, and Haiti became the first free black republic, and it uh, was a major step then in the coming of the abolition movement and the ending of chattel slavery. In that particular case, the political effects of an epidemic were freedom. But that doesn't chime much of a bell today, where it's becoming pretty obvious globally that governments trying to deal with the coronavirus are responding by restricting freedoms in general. And this is seen as a necessary evil. Under normal circumstances, 
Chinese government is heavily criticized for its authoritarian methods, but its swift action in locking down Wuhan, the original coronavirus hot zone, was universally applauded as the right step to take to contain the spread of the virus at that time. And since then, we've been seeing a situation where ever more draconian steps are being taken to limit people's movements. In Israel and in parts of Asia, the government is using mobile technology to monitor cell phones in order to track people's movements. And South Africa has just announced that it may also be doing the same. In Hungary, where Prime Minister Viktor Orban has been accused for some time of being a dictator in the making, the government is seeking to indefinitely extend a state of emergency that allows rule by decree. In other words, a suspension of normal democratic processes. And as of midnight on Thursday, 26th March, South Africa follows the example of many other countries in entering a state of lockdown, which sees severe restrictions placed on people's freedom of movement and freedom of association the kind of restrictions that we haven't seen since apartheid. Unless they work in essential services, people in South Africa will only be able to leave their homes to buy groceries and essential goods or to seek medical care. If you take a chance and get caught, you could face a fine or six months in jail. We've been told there will be soldiers on the streets, there will be soldiers setting up roadblocks, checking the relevant permissions. And most of us, I think, understand that some level of confinement is necessary to break the chain of transmission, but that doesn't stop us contemplating these 21 days ahead with anxiety. In an emergency situation, it's obvious that our sense of what is democratically permissible has to shift. But what is worrying about this scenario is the possibility that unscrupulous leaders could use a situation like this to push through authoritarian measures, which then become normalized as part of life, even after the crisis. Professor Snowden says that this is a valid concern. And he also says that we shouldn't fall into the trap of believing that authoritarianism is a necessary condition for containing emergencies. In fact, just taking the example of the United States, it's not necessary to end the American Constitution in order to fight this pandemic. The U.S. was able to deal with the Great Depression and with the Second World War by, at the national level, to coordinate states, counties, local government, uh, the private sector, and the state in a partnership to wage a great war without sacrificing long-term the Constitution and the Bill of Rights enshrined within it. It's not necessary to do that, and that's something that needs to be seen, and I don't think that there is an idea that pandemics demand authoritarianism. I think it's exactly the opposite, that democracies are able, one can see this in Italy, to mobilize the population because they have the consent of the population. And one of the features is the cooperation in Italy of the people with the decrees of public health. And that's being done in a way that is partly voluntary, but also with some penalties that are severe for non-compliance. But everyone realizes that this is a matter of life and death and that this isn't putting an end to the Italian political system or to democracy. So this is a, a tense moment and your right to raise those political issues, but we don't need to lurch into authoritarianism, although there are political forces that are saying that's exactly what we need. You're listening to Don't Shoot the Messenger. We'll be right back. 
This podcast and much of Daily Maverick's work is made possible by Daily Maverick Insiders, our community of readers who provide us with hugely appreciated monthly support. You can find details on the Insider program and the benefits available through it on the Daily Mavericks website. I don't know about you, but something I've been finding a little bit comforting about the current pandemic is the sense that globally we really are in this together. Countries might be experiencing different case numbers, different death tolls, and they may have very, very different resources available to tackle the virus. But for ordinary people, this is a moment where it is possible for once to feel like we are part of a shared global experience. And I think you can see this most strongly online, where funny quarantine videos from all over are being shared because the humor is universally accessible. We all get it. We all relate to that sense of frustration and claustrophobia. And that got me thinking, despite all the terrible aspects of this disease, could one impact be that we end up globally closer than ever? Could we be drawn together in a new human understanding of the elements of life like disease and death and loss that are universal to all our experiences? Short answer, don't get too excited. Professor Snowden says that's probably unlikely. In fact, what he fears is pretty much the opposite. After all, this virus has achieved what governments across the globe have been trying to do with increasing intensity over the past few years. Close borders, stop immigration, and contain countries to their own little silos. The disease is being manipulated, coronavirus, this pandemic, is being uh, manipulated by the right in Europe to push through an authoritarian agenda and an anti-internationalist, nativistic agenda, and for this dissolution or weakening of the European Union, one can see that in Salvini, the leader of the far right in Italian politics, uh, but also Le Pen in France and other countries who argue that this is all due to immigration that without immigration, one wouldn't have this. And so uh, that's preparing a world in which nationalism and right-wing politics with a negation of internationalism and globalization, kind of right-wing populism, they're attempting against all scientific evidence to attribute this to immigration and therefore to put up walls I'm hoping that the Trumpian wall won't become a sort of metaphor for the era in which we live, but that is what the far right is seems to be championing at the moment, and they're proclaiming that quite actively. And so we can see the exploitation of pandemic diseases for political purpose on playing before our eyes. Whether that will be successful or not is something that we'll have to see, but it is clearly at least a possibility. The possibility that this pandemic might lead to a more isolated, splintered, hostile geopolitics is a pretty gloomy one. But it is also possible that some positives might emerge from our current predicament, and among them might be a new way of thinking about how people work, how people earn money, and how people access healthcare. It's difficult to see how we can continue with a system that doesn't provide care for everyone. And the World Health Organization has said 
that the only way to be prepared is to have a universal free access to care. And I think that that degree of change is absolutely necessary. The way that we work and the way in which people care for other people, the way in which society takes care of the most vulnerable people in its midst, that is something that is raised to enormous proportions by this pandemic and is one of the great lessons that must be learned. Will South Africa learn those lessons? Will we see fundamental shifts in our politics as a result of all of this? Will we all get arrested on the way to spa? For now, nothing to do but wait and see and stay at home. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohamed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify wherever else you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.